So today we're starting part one of a three-part series called The Real You uh, because one of the things that we want to focus on is we want to we teach truth around all different areas of life, all different things that we have to work through. And one of the things that we have to work through is this urge, this bent in all of us to define our worth, to define our value, define who we are in things around us and not who we really are. Every single one of us, we struggle with this to some degree. And over the next three weeks, we're going to talk about um, how the things that we do, kind of our performance, um, that is something that we can find our value in, and that's not really who we are. We're going to look at next week how our possessions, uh, that's not really who we are. And then the last week, our relationships. That all three of those things can be really good things, um, but they are not the place that we find our value um, because for all of us, when we define our value by something, then that's also the way I define your value as well. And we've seen horrible things happen in humanity as you look through the history of humanity uh, where someone established why a person is valuable and then consequently why someone else isn't as valuable and then they hurt those devalued people. Right? You look no further than the Holocaust. Look no further than genocide happening in Africa. Look no further than, honestly, just abuse and mistreatment of people in our country where we say, hey, these people don't matter as much as me or these people. And it all comes back to our value system and why we value people. So this is a question, no matter uh, if you are a Jesus follower, if you're brand new to church, brand new, still trying to figure it out, if you don't believe anything that I'm going to talk about for the next half an hour or so, every one of us, no matter where we're coming from, we have to answer this question of where does our value come from? Because for a lot of us, the thing that we are pointing to to bring value to our lives is going to change, and then that would mean that we are no longer valuable. And as people who would hold up Jesus Christ and say, man, I follow Jesus, I believe in Jesus, I couldn't explain everything in the Bible to you, but I believe in Jesus, I'm a Jesus follower, we need to look to the scripture to answer this question as the authority from God to show us where our value comes from. This is in the very beginning where God created all of humanity. He made all the world, everything in it, the birds, the trees, the oceans, everything. And then it says this in chapter 1, verse 27, that God created man specifically and differently than everything else when he created mankind in his own image. Now it goes on to say that in the image of God, he created them male and female he created them. So you and I are different than all of other creation. I hate to break it to you, as much as you love your cat, as much as you love your dog, as much as you love whatever animal, your fish, people aren't usually as attached to fish as they are to like bigger animals, as much as you love that horse, whatever it is for you, like you're different than a tree. You are different than an animal because you have God's image in you. And it's not based on even our ability to reason. Some people say, hey, we're able to reason. Well, to be honest, if you're able to reason, what do I do with my mentally handicapped uncle? So he, he's not valuable? No, he, he still has God's image on him. And because every one of us has God's image, every one of us is equal. We all have value. And we've seen this at times really a clear example of that, yes, this is true, this is right, but also we've seen it where this is really messed up. And even for some of you, this is the reason why you kind of stiff-armed God, why you kind of backed away from the church, because you saw that the church valued certain people over than others. Like, let's not, um, let's not pretend, let's also, like, we can embrace a little bit of an awkward tension of, like, like, what do we do with the segregation of our country that was in the church? 
If we as Jesus followers should say that everyone is valuable, then how come the people who look like me, sound like me, believe exactly like me are more valuable than the people who don't? And we might not ever say those words, but we live that way. And you've seen people live that way. You were frustrated because you heard Christians raise up banners and raise up a voice for the voiceless and the baby that's inside the womb saying, that's life and that's valuable, but they show little valuable effort to the woman who's carrying that baby. For some reason, we care about the unborn babies, but as soon as they're born, they're just, doesn't matter anymore, apparently. And you've seen things like that, and you've been frustrated. And I should say, we should be frustrated about stuff like that, because it's wrong, and it's gross, and it's evil. Because again, when we look to God, he establishes our value by giving us his image. It's not something you did. It's not something that I did. But the problem is, for so many of us, we love to find value outside of ourselves. That still is connected. And even today, one of the things that we're going to talk about uh, in particular is the idea of uh, just performing and the performance trap. Where we think that because we do enough, because we do the right things, therefore, now I'm more valuable. And every one of us is like this to a degree, right? For you, if you're a student, it, maybe it's your GPA, Maybe it's not your GPA. Maybe it's you making the team, you starting on the team, you getting into that club, you getting into the college. The performance that you do, the things that you do defines who you are and really what you do is not the real you. Maybe you're, you're a, a parent. You say, hey, my relationship with my kids, being able to control my kids, if there was such a thing, right? being able to, to have my kids where they're dressed ready to go here, like everything's going to be great and like my house is kept well and we got the cars and all that stuff. And, and for you, it's honestly just your environment is your performance. And when you do everything really good, you feel good about yourself. When you can't measure up to your standard, you don't feel good about yourself. Or it's making partner, getting your name on the board, having whatever title, whatever office, whatever it might be, where you say that is like, I will be enough. I will be more valuable when I get to that place. But the performance trap is honestly just like any other trap. It promises one thing and it produces another thing. You think about a mouse trap. To a mouse, the mouse trap promises dinner, right? See a nice piece of cheese, peanut butter, which is a trick I learned, right? You put peanut butter on there, then they go, and what does it actually produce? Death. It doesn't give them what you want unless you get the frustrating thing like I've had where you go to check the mouse trap and the peanut butter's all gone, but there's no mouse, which is one of the most frustrating things in the world because if you do the old school mouse traps, it's like super tense trying to get it to go on there and then it snaps three times and then finally you go, all right, forget this is going to be death of somebody besides the mouse, right? But the performance trap, one of the things that it promises, it, it, honestly, it seems like satisfaction, where it's promising you one thing, and like any trap, it's dangerous because as it promises you satisfaction, it really is going to leave you wanting more. Because when you achieve, when you do enough, if you're able to even do what you've set as a standard, at some point you go, this isn't as satisfying. You move into that new office, that new house, whatever it is, you get that GPA. At some point you're going, like, I thought I'd be happy now. And suddenly I'm not. Maybe it's acceptance. And let's, let's also be real that for so many of us, the performance trap has been alive and well in the church. And this is a big thing that, that we feel 
towards the church is that when I can do good enough, when I can dress the right way, when I can come in, when I'm not struggling with this thing or that thing or my family's here, then I'll be accepted. And that's something that a lot of us were taught from a church. Which even, that's why we have problems with the church. That's why you have problems with people like me on stage telling you what to do because you go, you're saying that I have to do things in order to earn your acceptance. But if you could perform to get acceptance, that is not true acceptance. Another thing that it offers is status or security even. We go, when I do good enough, then I'll be confident in who I am. When I can get to a certain size, then I will be confident in who I am. When I can earn a certain amount of money, when I can get into that spot, when I can finally please my parent, I'll be happy. But it promises the one and it actually produces the exact opposite for so many of these things. Instead of uh, satisfaction, it produces a fear of failure. Where you are terrified to try anything new because anything new could result in you failing, which would be disastrous to your self-esteem and your whole world that you've built keeping up your image. For some of us, it's also controlling, which goes right along with things like anger where you want people around you to perform at such a level, whether it's a a work relationship, a home relationship, a romantic relationship, whatever. You want people to perform so well around you, and when they don't, you get frustrated and you try to control the people around you. Some of you have been in relationships like that. The person wants you to perform a certain way, and they control everything. Then they get angry and reject you when you don't perform that way. Also, perfectionism. You're just trying, it's not like you like things to be neat and square, right? Like that doesn't make you a perfectionist. It's where you say, like my day has to go exactly according to plan. And if anything is bumped out of order, I lose it. I'm depressed. I'm mopey the rest of the day. I get frustrated. I work so much later than I was even going to because I had to make up for all the stuff that didn't go exactly the way I wanted to. Perfectionism is a real problem. And one of the biggest things that it produces with the performance track is insecurity. Where you say, In the back of your mind, as good as you do, you always have the thought of, will I measure up? Am I good enough? And let's also be real that our performance job is actually like gasoline on a fire with social media, right? Because social media for some of us, I'm on social media for so many of us, it's all about performing well. It's all about me posting pictures about doing a good job with things, not showing all the ugly parts of the things that I was trying to get to. Right, like if you have a, a toddler and you're planning their Pinterest perfect birthday party, which is if you've ever been to a toddler or a preschool birthday party, you know, like it's a huge amount of work for like two pictures, and you post pictures of like the cute little handouts you're giving to people that the kids are just gonna destroy on the way home, but you don't post like yeah, it took us till three in the morning and my husband and I both having a meltdown and being frustrated and like, but we got the little gift for the kids, right? Or you post a picture of you in the gym, like, man, I just, I just did awesome, I just did the max weight. Or like, if you're a little bit self-conscious, you post just a foot picture in the gym, right? <laughs> you, all, you see them, you do them, I've done them. You just say, I'm on the treadmill, like, then I go and do other things, right? But, but we post those pictures that we don't post like, yeah, like Tuesday I ate two Whoppers in my van by myself listening to sports radio. <laughs> Happened to a friend. But this is the thing, we, we post things that we want people to see based on our good performance, and we even twist it where we're like humble about it. Like we do something, man, I'm just so, I'm just so humbled to have, like, and honestly, pastors are really bad at this, right? Like, I'm so humbled to have the opportunity to speak on a stage to a bunch of people, 
and I post about it, but I don't post like, I'm humble to clean up the kid's bathroom. That's not as cool. Or even people, they, they post, and it's kind of performance and kind of self-centered of like even people where they post like, man, like, I'm so sloppy. I just got out of bed, and like, these people are hitting on me at the supermarket. Oh, my goodness. Like, okay, like, you're bragging about being sloppy, but people are hitting on you still. But you're only saying that so people think more of you. And for a lot of us, we post things, and our lives are centered around focusing on helping people see more of us based on the things that we do. And this is not a new thing. And this, even within the church, within the people who follow Jesus, this is not like a 1950s problem and new thing. This is actually thousands and thousands of years old. If you go through the scriptures, you'll see person after person that struggle with the performance trap, struggling to think that the things that they do defines their value and failing miserably at it. One guy in particular, a guy named Paul, he actually like dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's and had his life completely together. And he took that and basically just threw it out the window and said, forget about all that stuff. Compared to Jesus, all that's worthless. And we're going to look at his story even. We're going to look at what he wrote to some of the people who were following Jesus that had teachers coming in and telling them you had to perform well in order for God to accept you. And what I want to say even through the next time that we have this morning is you don't have to perform good enough for God to accept you. If you heard that somewhere, that's a lie. You can do things because God accepts you. You don't do things so God accepts you. And Paul learned that. Before we get into Paul, we got to do a little bit of background uh, so that way you can track with us and, and really, uh, for some of us, it would help us even like, understand what are they talking about with the law, things like that. Uh, so thousands and thousands of years ago, uh, God had a, a person named Abraham that he said, I'm promising, I'm going to make a nation out of you. I'm going to bless the whole world through this nation. I'm going to bless you beyond all measure so people will know how great I am because of how good I treat you. And Abraham had a family that grew into a bigger family that grew into a bigger family that grew into a TV show on TLC that grew into a bigger family. Just kidding. They didn't have TLC back then. It was on MTV. Um, <laughs> but so he had a bigger and bigger and bigger family. And then all of a sudden there were slaves in Egypt and God's pulling these people out because he doesn't forget his promises ever. He pulls them out of Egyptian captivity and says, okay, now you're in the desert, but you don't know how to be a nation because you've never been a nation before. So I'm going to give you the law as a way to live. And some things are ceremonial. Some things are civil. Some things are moral. Even if you have no church background, you don't know the Bible, you probably have heard of the Ten Commandments at some point. Even if you couldn't name any of the Ten Commandments or you've broken all the Ten Commandments, you know the Ten Commandments are something from the Bible. And what God did is he gave them a law and said, this law is going to show you how to live, but it's not there to make you good enough. It's actually there to show you you're not good enough and to lead you to point to a sacrifice that is coming that will cover everything you've ever done. And through that sacrifice, you will be good enough. So the law was never made to make us righteous. But what happened, like over time, like what happened so much is humans got in the way and we adjusted it and changed it so that we actually could keep the law. And we could declare ourselves good enough based on what we do. And Paul was right in the middle of that religious system. Paul was walking in that. He was living in that. He was thriving in that system. You'll see that. And he took that and threw all of it out the window to follow Jesus because he learned the profound truth that who you are is not what you do. Your value is not because of the things that you do. It's not the real you. So if you have a Bible or if you are tracking with on the CC app and the message notes, you can open up to Philippians 3. And this is what Paul says as he's explaining things to this group of people. 
This is a letter written to a group of believers in the city of Philippi. It's like modern-day Greece. Um, I say all that even to give you an idea of if you're investigating in faith, like look this stuff up. Don't just take my word for it. There's historical data behind it. And look up things because the actual show, like, okay, there was this group of people there. They were there. These are things that actually happened. So this is what Paul said. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, having confidence in the flesh, confidence in the things that you and I can do, and all of us love to have confidence in the stuff we can do, right? Though I have reason for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day gets right into the really personal stuff right away, I guess. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law, a Pharisee. Now, all this stuff doesn't really make sense to us because of our context, our background, our culture. Um, but to the people he was writing to, the Philippian people, uh, this had huge influence over them. Basically, he's saying, I am elite. I am the top 1% of my religious institution. I had incredible power. I had incredible influence. Like, I had my stuff together. Now, this is the part we can understand. He even goes into uh, some of this. Regards to the law, a Pharisee. That means that he was elite top group of his religious system. In regards to zeal, he persecuted the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. So to summarize, basically, if you look, he, with his law, with him following the law, he was the elite, means again, he was the top of everybody, on the fast track to incredible power in his context. In regards to zeal, he was extreme. He didn't just talk a big game. Right? We've all been around, uh, whether it's the playground, work environment, school, home, whatever. We've all been around someone who talks a big game about somebody. Like, man, that Justin guy, he's such a jerk. If he came to me and talked to me like that, I'd tell him or I'd punch him, right? And then that Justin guy comes to the room and everyone's like, oh, hey, man. <laughs> Good afternoon. How are you, sir? Right? We've all been around those people who they talk a big deal, but they don't follow it up. Paul didn't just talk a big deal. In regards to Israel, he was extreme. He was an extremist where he went around destroying churches, destroying people's lives and families because they believed differently than he did. And because of their belief system was different, they were not as valuable as he was. Because his beliefs and his system of performance determined his value. But then also in regards to the law, the man-made version of the law, he was completely faultless. I mean, you and I could not stick anything to him if we wanted to. There would be no scandal under him when he ran for anything if they had a vote and it was a political type thing because you couldn't put anything on him. Completely faultless. And again, Paul had his stuff together. And this is where if you're here and you're trying to figure out if you believe scripture, you're not sure, Paul's life is a great one to look at because it's a huge argument for there could be something more. Because Paul was on his way, fast-tracked to all kinds of prestige and power and influence, and he gave all that up to follow a lower-class carpenter that's disappeared. And we would believe, based on the scriptures, that Jesus died and rose again and then ascended into heaven. That makes sense why he's not there anymore. But if, if you're Paul walking around in the first century, does any of that make sense? Like, I could have all this power, or I could follow a group of fugitives that I'm actually trying to snuff out, and their leader who's not here anymore. It doesn't make any sense unless you say, well, I, I believe actually Jesus came and met Paul, and that changed Paul's entire life. So for all of us, this is where we need to look and focus. Okay, Paul was trying to win life by performance, 
Then something changed. And what changed and what was his focus? And this here in verse 7 is where we see a difference in his focus, a shift in his life value system. It says, but whatever were gains, and again, there are plenty, power, influence, all kinds of things. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider a loss, everything a loss, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. And if he hasn't been clear enough, he goes on to say, I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ. Everything's lost. Now the reality is, the value you base on something determines how long you look for it when you lose it, right? Like if you misplace your wallet or your purse, you probably spend a good amount of time looking for it. If you misplace your lunch... Not such a big deal. You misplace your coffee, call 911, right? <laughs> Even for some of us, let's be real. Depending on which kid we lose, depends on how long we're going to spend looking for him, right? <laughs> but Paul says, all these things I was building towards, everything that I was kind of putting my life on, complete loss. I willingly give them up. I am not going to search for those things any longer. They're dead to me. They have zero value. And then again, even to go further, if Paul was from my part of the country where I grew up in New England, he'd say it was garbage. He considers them garbage. His word here for garbage is actually dung. It's doo-doo. It's a pile of sh- I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> can't say that in this church. Well, we probably could say it in this church. But this is the deal. And that's actually, if you look in the cut, like, that's basically what Paul is saying. And, and let's be honest, you know, I'm not trying to be crude or immature, but how many of us, as much as we humble brag on stuff, how many of us are posting pictures and things about things that happen in the bathroom? Unless you're super weird, no one's posting on about that, right? Like, no one is like, unless you're like a new parent, right? New parents, it's strange how quickly stuff like that becomes so normal. At like dinner, you're like, this is so weird. We've had a kid for like 10 minutes and we're already talking about this at dinner. But nobody, nobody in their right mind is going to post about something as worthless as their garbage, right? It makes no sense. And what Paul is saying, even in this, is saying, it makes no sense to post, to brag about, to find my value and my worth based on what I do. Because what I do is never going to be good enough. And it's far too small a thing to put my value in because ultimately I'm not going to be doing that thing anymore. Even as you, as you go on further, you think about the question that Paul has to answer for himself, the question all of us have to answer for ourselves is, is Jesus enough and who am I going to live for? If Paul met, like hypothetically with me, if Paul met Jesus, Paul had to come to a place where he decided, is Jesus worth living for or am I worth living for? Is Jesus the one that I want to focus my life towards or am I the one I want to focus my life towards? And every single one of us, we have to answer that question because when I live for myself, then my performance is everything I have. And it matters because it either helps or hurts the person that I'm worshiping, which is myself. But when I live for Jesus, I have to come to realization that my performance doesn't hurt Jesus. It won't hurt Jesus. It can't hurt Jesus. Because actually, as you look through Scripture, Jesus would say he calls people into relationship with him. He says, hey, come to me, everyone who's tired, everyone who's weary, I'll give you rest. Like, come to me. He calls us into relationship with him. And when he does this, he knows you. 
He knows everything you've ever done. He knows everything you ever will do. He's not calling you in ignorance. He's calling you complete and total knowledge, knowing you better than you even know yourself. All the bad stuff you've done, he knows you, and he still is willingly calling you. And if he's going to call you, Scripture teaches that he actually clothes us and covers us with himself. Where he takes us and he puts, the, he uses the terminology of being cloaked in his righteousness, having a garment wrapped around us that is his righteousness, his good stuff, not my stuff. And if he has covered me with himself, then it goes on to talk about how we have confidence that we can never be separated from him. And that includes our ability or inability to perform well. Some of you, you need to hear, like, God does not get mad at you when you mess up. Because he already knew you were going to mess up. When he called you, he already knew that. This is the, the doctrine of justification that God, in a legal sense, has taken all your horrible things, all my horrible things, all the areas, the small stuff I think is no big deal. Anything that was displeased him, he takes that and he completely wipes it clean when he covers me with himself. And it says that when Jesus died for us, because Jesus came, lived the perfect life, completely satisfied the law that we could never do, even changing it for ourselves, we could never satisfy God's law because it was focused on external things that we would do, and he wants to know about our hearts. We could not satisfy that. So Jesus came, lived the perfect life, satisfied God's law for the ultimate sacrifice, dying in your place, in my place, completely covering every bad thing that I've ever done, and then coming back to life three days later to offer us life and prove that he's God. And this is the reality. When God looked at Jesus on the cross, he poured out all of his wrath on Jesus. Like everything, 100% of God's wrath was poured out on Jesus, the perfect one who deserved no wrath. And when I align myself under Jesus, there's no wrath for me. That is what the good news of Jesus is. But this is also the reality that everyone needs to know. That is a choice to align yourself under Jesus. If you don't want to, you don't have to. And you can stay outside of the covering that Jesus has made available to you, and you can stay outside and say, I'm going to pay for it myself. And some of us live that way. Say, I'm going to hope my good outweighs my bad. I'm going to live for myself, and really, I'll be the judge. But the reality is, you don't have the authority to be the judge, just like I don't have the authority to be your judge. And if you're going to live outside of what Jesus has done for you, there is wrath for you. Because God is just. He also is just as much mercy for you. To say, come underneath. I know everything you've done. Come underneath the covering that's been made available through the life of Jesus. That is the good news. And it's faith in Jesus. We even see that in verse 9 where, where Paul talks and says, he wants to be found. This is Paul's focus for his life is that he wants to be found in Jesus. Not having a righteousness that comes of my own, that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. The reality is every single one of us has faith in something. The problem is that when we have this performance trap that we're tied to where what I do defines my value, I have faith simply in the wrong thing. It's myself. And it's faith in Jesus because our faith is only as strong as the object of our faith. So who are you believing in? Even for some of us, we see this word no, uh, where we get a little bit further down 
in verse 10 where he says, I want to know Christ. I want to know him and know the power of his resurrection, the participation of his sufferings and becoming like him in death. Now, this sounds kind of strange, right? Like, we all want the good part. We all want the power of his resurrection. We've even seen a song about Jesus resurrecting power, and it's great, and we want to sing that. But I can tell you, it all kind of bases off of what you mean when you say you know Jesus. Because for some of us, we say, oh, yeah, I know Jesus. Like, I have an understanding. I have an intellectual knowledge of Jesus. Kind of like you know your neighbors. You know your kids' teachers. You know that really cute guy at school, the really cute girl at school. Yeah, I know them. I don't really, I don't know them. This word here is talking about an intimate relationship. If you love Christmas like I love Christmas, like last two weeks ago, I was listening to Christmas music. I don't know why. I can't explain it. I don't really want to fight it. I just, hey, all about Christmas music. Some of you are like, man, you need help. Um, but it's actually in the next couple of weeks, we're going to cross the point of closer to this Christmas than we were to that Christmas. And like, it's going to be exciting. I don't have a tree up or anything, okay? It's not that strange, but... If you've seen uh, Christmas movies, if you've seen the movie Elf, or Buddy the Elf, raised by elves, he's actually a human, he goes to New York City, tries to find his dad, can't find his dad, he's in a toy store called the North Pole, and the manager comes over the system and says, hey everybody, Santa's coming on Saturday. And if you've seen the movie, you know what happens. If you haven't seen it, Buddy loses his freaking mind. Santa's coming! Santa's coming! I know him! I know! Like a grown man running around a toy store in an elf costume, about as strange as it was when I just did it, right? You'd be like, hide the kids. But this is the reality. Buddy the elf knew Santa, had an intimate relationship with him. That is the no that Paul is talking about here. And this is the reality for some of us. If you have an intellectual knowledge about Jesus, I know who Jesus is. I have an idea. I grew up in some kind of background where Jesus was talked about. You, you understand. Then you will want the power of the resurrection because everybody wants power, right? And, and in some churches, too, we, we even throw out the power. You get some power. You get some power. I feel like you're Oprah, right? Everybody power all around. Everybody gets the power. But what about the suffering? Like, what about the death? And this is the reality. When I simply have an intellectual knowledge about Jesus, all I want is the good things that I think God wants to give me. But when I have that intimate relationship with God, I become more like Jesus, and I begin to say, you know what? I'm okay suffering a little bit. I'm okay giving up of myself a little bit, even to the point of death where I'm going to lay down my life for somebody else. I'm going to lay down, even for some of us, it's not your literal life, but maybe it's your reputation, Maybe it's your, your work social dynamic. Maybe for you, if you're in high school, it's your, hey, my, my friends, I'm going like, to make a big deal about Jesus. I'm going to lay down how I think peers are going to view me because I love Jesus so much. And for some of us, it will be and it could be your actual literal life. That's what happened to Paul. But it, you can never get there simply with the intellectual knowledge of Jesus and a performance-driven relationship. Because if I die, my performance ceases to exist. Therefore, I don't value anymore. But when I can rest in Jesus and say, you know, it's not about what I do. It's the fact that I have God's image on me and I am called in and covered and confident that Jesus is with me. That is why I am valuable. Then I can finally lay down my life. Then I can finally begin to change. For some of you, you want to know Jesus so much. 
but you are in the way of you knowing Jesus. And you tell yourself things like, well, when I, when I finally get over this addiction, this habit, when I finally get this relationship put together, when I finally become a certain age, when I finally do whatever, like, I'm going to get my life together enough so that Jesus will be cool with me and he'll finish like the last 10% of my life. The reality is, if you were able to get your life together, you wouldn't need Jesus. None of us would. And this is the thing, too. Even when you, you go into that relationship where Jesus calls you into a relationship with him, you say, okay, I have that. You don't need Jesus just to join Jesus in the relationship. You need Jesus for everything, too. Like, for you to lay down your life for your friends, you need Jesus. For you to go across the room to invite someone to something, to share someone with someone, to pray for someone, to do something incredibly awkward, and like, I'm not really sure. I just feel so weird with this, but like, I just didn't tell you, like, God loves you. I know it's weird, but like, I just, like, you need Jesus to do all that stuff too. It's not just to begin. This is where Paul even talked in another letter. He wrote to people saying, it's not that you just begin in Jesus. You do everything in Jesus. It's all about Jesus. That's why every single week you come to Center Point, we're going to talk about Jesus. Because he is the one who's done everything for us. And we need Jesus for everything. As you're looking at your life in view of the performance trap, the reality is if you think about it, anything you're basing your value on based on performance is ultimately going to be gone. If your grades, your GPA, your academics, that's your value, you're going to graduate. Especially if that's your value, you're going to graduate. If you don't have good grades, maybe not. If your kids, making sure your kids perform good enough, making sure your house is kept clean, making sure you have that immaculate Stepford Wives kind of, hey, this is our castle. Like, we, like, it's going to be gone sometime. Your job, as much as you love it, as much as they love you, at some point you're not going to be doing that anymore. You're going to retire. You're going to sell the business. You're going to move on, whatever it is. And, and that's the reality is that those things are far too small to find our value in. And it's not saying that we don't work. It's not saying that we don't do things. Because even Scripture is very clear that we should work as to God and not just for people. It's very clear that even Jesus himself said that we need to take and do good things for people to see because when I do things, good things for people to see, then they will glorify, they will give praise to God who's in heaven. So it's not that we don't work because that's laziness, but it's realizing that work is not a good place to find our value. And for some of you, you need to hear that because you're working your life to the bone and you're ruining everything around you. Even on the way out of here today, Ask the people in the car with you. If they're silent, you have a problem. If they talk about it, you have a problem. This is even, if I can be really open and honest, like the reality of what I do here at the church, and this is like, don't have pity on me because I'm living the dream and I love what I'm doing, but there's a point where there's always more to do. I can put in all day, every day, and there's always more to do. And some of you, you have a similar context like that. Some of you, it's your marriage, it's your kids, there's always more to do, and we have to get to a place where we can settle and go, okay, my value is not based on what I do. My value is not based on getting that project and finishing that and how good that is. Those are valuable things, but that's not where my value is. We need to shift our focus from focusing on today to focusing on tomorrow and have a single focus like Paul had. It says here, Philippians 3, down all the way to verse 14. It says, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself 
yet to have taken hold of it. Talking about this future goal that we are all striving for. But one thing that I do, the one thing Paul is focused on doing, is forgetting what is behind and straining towards what's ahead. For some of us, um, this is a good and a bad thing. We need to forget about the good things and the bad things. Past performance needs to stay in the past. Don't bring your mishaps, your mistakes Don't bring your success stories into the future. Keep them where they are. For some of us, it's the bad things of, you you think, honestly, it's it's cheating on the test. It's fudging the numbers, doing some unethical deal with your business. It's the wrong thing, the way you spoke to your kid, even this morning, trying to get them ready to come here, holding over a cloud over you. It's the messed up house, the things, it's not how I was. For some of us, it's divorce. We're like, let's be real, like, it was so your fault. And you know it, and your kids know it, and your ex-spouse knows it, and you are holding on to that. And we need to, in a healthy and good way, release that and forget that and say, that choice does not define me today. For some of you, and I say this in the most sensitive and loving way I can, you need to forget about the abortion. That's a horrible thing, and I'm so sorry that's where you felt you had to be. That choice does not have to continue to dictate your life now. Come talk with us. We have people to talk with you, to work through you. All the bad things, things I listed, things I didn't list. Talk with people, forgetting the bad things where the past performance doesn't have control over your life. But also on a good side of things, your stickers you got in Sunday school, your I grew up in church, my parents are Jesus people. like Forget about that stuff too, because that doesn't matter. Focusing on towards what is ahead, because ultimately what is ahead is Jesus. To be with him forever. And that's why he needs to be the focus of our lives, not ourselves. A guy, Robert McGee, put it this way, but I think it's just so clear. The focus of the Christian life should be on Christ, not on self-imposed regulations. And all of us love self-imposed regulations because we believe at some point we can earn enough, we can perform well enough to value ourselves. This is also the reality is that Jesus is so much better to look at than your or my track record because he's completed everything. When he hung on that cross, dying in our place, taking our punishment, he said, it is finished. Means it's complete, it's done. So nothing you do, good or bad, is gonna change how God feels about you. So all of us, we had to struggle through the question at the beginning of where does our value come from, but then ultimately, the bigger question we need to think through is who is Jesus to you? Is he simply someone that agrees with your lifestyle, that sprinkles on that last 10%, where I do good enough and then Jesus helps me a little bit, because honestly, that's not enough. I'm not saying that to be rude, I'm saying that, that to show you, you're still believing in you and not in Jesus. Maybe you think he's just a teacher, you're not sure who he is, you're still trying to figure that out, you're welcome to try to figure that out here. We'd love for you to figure that out. You don't have to believe what we believe before you come and be a part of what we're doing here. We'd love everybody because everybody's valuable because they have God's image on them. Jesus said this about himself. He said that he is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Now, on first glance, that can seem like a very exclusive invitation where only certain people get to come into heaven, but that is not at all what it is. It's actually incredibly, incredibly inclusive where everybody and anybody can come because based on what Jesus has done and not what you've done, not what I've done, The only reason I can have a restored relationship with God is not because of things that I did, but because of what Jesus did in my place. And I simply 
had the grace given to me from God to step under what Jesus has done for me to say, Jesus will pay for my penalty. Jesus will take the wrath that God has for me. I trust in Jesus. Jesus will give me new life. So ultimately, the question for every single one of us is who is Jesus to you? Because again, it says when we step into a relationship, we are justified. So your performance doesn't matter anymore. And we can live a life from a place of acceptance and love and security with God, not trying to earn those things from God. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Would you bow your heads, honestly, not even for me, but for the people around you as a, a way to respect the people and the privacy that some people would like in this moment? Because it's so helpful for us to have a time of response for you to recognize and honestly react to even what we've talked about today. How many of you would say, uh, just by raising your hand up and then right back down, that you'd say, Justin, as you talked, I realized I live my life more than I thought in the performance trap. You can raise your hand, you can put it up and down, Awesome. You put your hand up and down and say, more than I even thought, it's performance. You put your hand up and right back down. People all over, young and old, all sorts of people. I want to pray for you in a minute, but before I do, I just want to ask for the people in here who'd say, they don't know, you don't know who Jesus is to you, but you want him to be the one who saves you. Scripture taught that uh, we could not satisfy God's punishment for the things that we deserve, our sins, the things that we have done, we couldn't pay for that. So Jesus stepped in in our place and paid for that willingly, satisfying the wrath of God, the judgment that God wanted to have on us because he's just. But because he's also loving, he loved us enough to make a way back to himself. Jesus rose again three days later, showing that he is God and also extending life to anyone and everyone who would believe in him. And that brings us to the point of the question is, do you want to believe in Jesus? You might say, I have questions. I'm still trying to figure out stuff. That's totally fine. We all have questions. We're all trying to figure out stuff. But do you want to believe in Jesus and what he has done to restore your relationship back to God and not what you're doing? If that is you, would you raise your hand right now just to say, yes, I want to believe in Jesus and what he has done to satisfy God I want to align myself under Jesus. Anyone here, you raise your hand right now. You can put it up and right back down. I'm going to be outside at the after party with several of our staff. We would love to talk with you about this, not to give you a bunch of stuff to follow and do's and don'ts of the Christian faith, but to help you have a relationship with Jesus, to walk with you in what Scripture would say is newness of life. And I want to pray for you, and then we'll be done. God, thank you so much, God, for justifying us based on what you have done, what Jesus has done, and not based on what we do. God, I pray that we could uh, just look to you. God, that so many of us, God, that raise our hands, that we could uh, really unlearn the performance trap and turn to you. And God, also for, for those of us who for the very first time today said they want to trust in you and what you've done for them by taking their punishment and restoring them to God. God, thank you for them. I pray they would have boldness and courage to talk about that decision, to talk about that faith, to talk about that desire to be known by you. And God, that you would help all of us embrace the fact that we are valuable based on what you have said about us. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.